welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 New International Version The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. Daniel chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to wrap up our series that we've called The Complementary Attributes of God. With me in the studio is R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. As we've mentioned throughout this series, we wanted to do this series to spend some time just focusing on God. After all, the primary purpose of the Bible is to give us information about God. The Bible is God's special revelation to His people. As such, we thought it was appropriate to take a few episodes of Anchored by Truth and look at some of what we learned from that revelation. R.D., why did you decide to call this series The Complementary Attributes of God? Well, as many theologians have noted, it is possible to discern the need for God to exist just by observing the universe and applying logic and reason to what we see. Lots of pagan philosophers down through history have been able to determine that there has to be an explanation for the things that we see that exist around us. Even pagan philosophers like Aristotle have been able to use just their plain logic and reason to determine, in Aristotle's words, that there must be an unmoved mover. Well, of course, the Bible reaffirms that we can know that God exists just by looking at the created order. You're thinking of verses like Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, quote, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge, unquote. Yes, and another verse that points out the same thing is Romans one twenty. Romans one twenty says, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So we can know that God exists just from what we can see around us, then applying logic and reason to that evidence that we get from our senses. As we've pointed out before on Anchored by Truth, Empirical observations of the universe reveal that the universe does not and cannot contain an explanation for its own existence. So that allows us to reason that there must be a greater source, a greater cause, 
for what we can see and experience around us. But this knowledge, the knowledge of God that we obtain by using our human abilities, is general in nature. And that's why theologians will often refer to this kind of knowledge as general revelation. It's general revelation because it is general in nature, and it's general revelation because it's available to all people generally, just by them being able, again, to look at what they see around them and determine that there has to be an explanation for the existence of the things that we see in the visible universe. Now, by contrast, the knowledge that we get about God from the Bible is very particular knowledge about God. Theologians refer to this kind of knowledge as a special revelation. For instance, we can discern just by looking around at the extent and vastness of the universe that whoever, whatever, whoever created the universe that we can see must have monumental power, must have power so great that it's beyond human comprehension. So you can look and see from the vast size of the universe that a being of enormous and immense power must have created a structure that is that big. But you cannot derive from those observations the Trinitarian nature of God. You cannot derive from those empirical observations the plan of redemption. You cannot derive from those empirical observations that God is a God, for instance, of justice, love, and mercy. You can see that he's a God of power. You can see he's a God who creates things. You can see a lot of things. He's a God of design. He's a God of organization. You can see a lot of things from the created order that tells you something about God, but you cannot derive the particular and special information about the nature and character of God that we get from the Bible. So we called this series The Complementary Attributes of God because we wanted to discuss the fact that part of the special revelation that the Bible provides is demonstrating how all of God's attributes, his power, his creative ability, but also his love, justice, and mercy, how all of those attributes harmonize perfectly. So the word complementary in this series title is complementary with an E, not complementary with an I. Complementary with an E refers to the fact that two or more different things complement the other in such a way as to fulfill or complete their purpose. As an example of this, we've noted that if God were just a God of justice, when Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden, God would have expelled them with no hope of redemption. But, because God is a God of mercy, not merely a God of justice, After the rebellion, God immediately began a plan to redeem a people for himself. God's mercy and justice complement one another in such a way that it makes our redemption possible. Well, before we get too much deeper into our discussion, let's listen to a meditation from Crystal Sea Books' Purposeful Prayers on one of the attributes of God we want to think about today, God's holiness. A Meditation on God's Holiness As R.C. Sproul points out in his classic work, The Holiness of God, although the Bible talks about many different attributes of God, the Bible emphasizes only one attribute by triple repetition. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, God is described as being holy, holy, holy. While we tend to think of holy as meaning sacred or worthy of reverence, the primary biblical meaning of the term is different or other. The nature of his being reflects God's holiness. God is unlike every other entity that has ever existed 
because He alone is uncreated. As difficult as it may be to comprehend, God does not owe His existence to any other being or thing. He is not derived from anyone or anything else. God is transcendent. He created time and space and the universe, but He is not bound by any of them. He is other than His creation. God is also other in that He has no needs, not one. He depends on no other being or thing for anything at all. As mentioned earlier, sometimes you might hear a preacher or minister say, quote, God needs our praise and worship, unquote, or, quote, God needs the prayers of his people, unquote. While it is true that God wants those things, he is not any greater for having received them, nor any lesser without them. No one can add anything to God or take anything away from him. God has no flaws, weaknesses, or deficiencies. He is perfect. He makes no mistakes. He knows and does everything perfectly. God is completely other from any type of error. God's holiness can be a source of terror or comfort to his creatures. The terror comes when we realize that we are not fit to approach God on our own merits. As Sproul has said, quote, God is holy and we are not. Unquote. But those who have put their trust in Christ should be comforted from knowing we don't have to approach God on our own. We have access to the Father through the Son. He is our mediator. Christ's meritorious work, His sinless life and sacrificial atoning death, and our faith in Him are the means through which we can approach a holy God. Those who come to God through Christ can stand confidently before a throne that would otherwise be a holy terror. Because God is holy and perfect, we need not fear that he will act arbitrarily or capriciously. Unlike the gods of pagan mythologies, the God of the Bible is not tempted, indeed cannot be tempted, by spite, malice, or any lesser motive. He is worthy of complete confidence and trust. God's holiness, his otherness, is an assurance that he cannot fall prey to temptations that were the downfall of Satan, the demons, and ultimately for Adam and his children. God's holiness is the surest of foundations for our prayer and our lives. Now we chose that meditation for today because it helps set the stage for the set of attributes that we want to discuss in today's episode of Anchored by Truth. We want to talk about God's holiness, but also God's willingness to forgive sinners. Now, in my mind, in my opinion, nothing displays God's love for his people and his unfathomable greatness than to think about the fact that the perfectly holy God is a God who is also willing to forgive the offenses of his creatures, even when those offenses are committed by his people directly against him. Because that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden tree, they were directly violating a very clear commandment of God. And the text in Genesis 3 tells us that they expressly knew that they were violating a commandment for God. So it's a very correct thing to say 
that when Adam and Eve committed that offense, they were committing that offense directly against the character and nature of God. But the God who created the universe, even after they did that, is so compassionate that he was willing to begin a plan of redemption and forgiveness. So that perfectly holy God is also a God who is willing to forgive sins and offenses, even when they're committed by his creatures directly against him. That is a staggering thought. I don't think in our day and age a lot of people spend much time meditating on God's holiness. In our time, we tend to talk more about God's love and role in our salvation than we think about why that love and salvation are necessary. We tend to focus more on the blessing than the blesser. But you really can't appreciate the magnitude of the blessing that our salvation represents if we don't understand what goes behind it all. In order to really appreciate the greatness of God's grace, we need to remind ourselves occasionally of why that salvation was necessary in the first place, and of what God had to do to make salvation possible. Exactly. Now, one way to think about the implications of the complementary nature of God's attributes is to think about what happens in our own lives when we need deliverance from unexpected troubles. Like car troubles. Most of the time when we get in our car and turn the key, the car starts right up. That's what we get used to. But when we walk out to the car and the battery is dead, all of a sudden it's a different issue. Something we take for granted all of a sudden becomes a source of immediate concern. Something we never think about has suddenly become the central focus of our life. This is particularly true if it's dark out or we've gone to some unfamiliar place where we don't know anyone or where to turn for help. So when a helpful stranger helps us jumpstart the car or the roadside auto company truck shows up and we have a brand new appreciation for something and someone who was completely unimportant to us just minutes earlier, the immediacy of a previously unknown need has a way of commanding our attention and making us grateful for a deliverance that we didn't know we needed. Yes. You know, most of us are so busy with our daily lives that all too often we don't spend very much time thinking about eternal realities. You know, just like your example, when you go out to start your car and you turn the keys and the car normally starts, but now this time it doesn't, when the car is just starting because we're turning that key and everything is working the way it's supposed to, just like that, Christians can get so used to knowing that we are saved that we forget that there is a desperate need on the part of all humanity, on the part of all sinful humanity, for a Savior. We can get so used to knowing that we're saved that we forget that all of humanity has that same need. Now, I don't want to say that we take our salvation for granted. I don't think most of us do that. I think when it's pointed out to us that we are saved, most of us still have a spirit of gratitude, or at least I hope we do. It's just that we can get so used to knowing that we're saved that even devoted Christians can begin to lose that deep and abiding appreciation of what God and Jesus have done for us. We can just start to almost again become so aware of the fact that we are saved that it becomes second nature to us. And we need to every now and then remind ourselves of what a truly remarkable blessing that salvation is for us. We can get so used to saying the words grace and mercy and salvation that we can lose that deep sense of gratitude that we had for those words when we first understood what they meant to our lives and our destinies. 
And that's why it's important, I think, every now and then to stop and think about the fact that the source of our salvation, the reason for our salvation, is a gift that is almost beyond human comprehension. We need to stop every now and then and refocus ourselves on the source and reason for our salvation. I see what you're saying. That makes me think of the admonition that Christ gave to the church in Ephesus that's recorded in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Quote, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Unquote. In his initial comments to the church, Jesus commended the Ephesians for their hard work and perseverance on behalf of the gospel. But he reminded them that good doctrine was not enough by itself. Good doctrine had to be combined with a genuine love for the one who had made the gospel good news. Right. You know, as we've said before, for genuine spiritual growth and development, it's not enough just to read scripture, although that is, of course, supremely important. We have to also meditate on Scripture. We need to constantly remind ourselves that our salvation was free to us, but it was not free to God. God paid an enormous price, an unfathomable price, to redeem us from our sins. Now, God had to pay the price because God's the only one who could. Every now and then, somebody will ask, now, when you're saved, what are you saved from? And people will often respond, well, I'm saved from going to hell. I'm saved from the eternal consequences of my sin. They'll say something like that. But what the Bible really tells us is that what we are saved from is we are saved from God's wrath. Because sometimes people will say, well, God is not present in hell. That's, that's not an accurate statement. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere throughout the created order. But what is present in hell is not God's goodness and his beneficence, but rather it's God's wrath. So when God saves us from hell and from eternal damnation, God is saving us from himself. And the reason that we don't understand this, one of the reasons that we miss this very essential fact, is that God's holiness is so pristine that God can't even tolerate looking upon evil. You're thinking of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, which says of the Lord, quote, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing, unquote. Yes. So the question then becomes, how can a God who is so holy that his holiness is emphasized in two different places in the Bible by triple repetition, how can a God that is so holy that his eyes can't even bear to look upon evil how can a God like that also be a God who forgives sinners? Well, of all the mysteries in the Bible, and there are a lot, that mystery is without doubt among the most profound. Exactly. And some portions of the answer to that question, well, they undoubtedly will remain mysterious until we're standing face to face with God after the second coming, when we'll be able to ask him all the questions that we want and he will give us answers beyond anything we could comprehend today. Although God is so profound, we'll be having conversations with him throughout all eternity, and of course we will never come to understand comprehensively the infinite God. But one of the keys that we can perceive about how a holy God can also be a God of forgiveness is undoubtedly the key that is expressed in perhaps what is the best-known verse in the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll add verse 17. In the New International Version, it says, quote, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Unquote. In the contemporary English version, it says, quote, God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn its people. He sent him to save them. Unquote. Absolutely. When God created the world, he was not only expressing his creative power, he was also expressing his love. You know, we often talk about God's love in our culture and our church today, but if we don't first understand God's holiness, we cannot possibly fathom the true height, depth, and breadth of God's love. God's love for his created order, and especially the love that God had for the creature that God created in his image, man, that love allowed God to design a plan to redeem a people for himself, even after that creature resisted God's love by rebelling against him. So this is a thought that is staggering when you think about it, but you can't really understand how much God really loves mankind, how much he loves the people that he's redeemed for himself. We can't understand that degree of concern and affection and love if we don't appreciate the fact that at the time that God was doing that, Man was in utter rebellion to him. All human beings are. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to understand God's holiness, his magnificence, before we can start to really come to grips with the height, depth, and breadth of God's love. And it's important as we wrap up this series to note that we have by no means tried to cover all of God's attributes. In part, because if we tried, we'd fail. God is infinite. We are not. Yes, again. But we did want to pick out attributes to focus on because we wanted to point back to the reason that God gave us his special revelation in the Bible. The Bible is a single story about a single plan focused around a single person. The story is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption to redeem a people for himself by that single person who is Jesus. And God redeemed that people for himself. His plan was all about using Jesus' atoning death to provide and produce redemption for the people that God would spend his eternity with. Now, God's attributes, God's complementary attributes, show us why and how he was able to do that. Why he began the plan, how he continued the plan, and how he brought that plan to fruition in Jesus' atoning death. We first looked at the complementary attributes of God's justice and mercy. God's justice meant he had to punish evil and sin when it entered the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God's mercy meant he immediately launched a rescue plan. Exactly. And then next we looked at God's transcendence and eminence. God's eminence meant that he not only continually superintended his creation and the rescue plan, but God's eminence also meant that he could enter the created order at the right time and place in history to complete the plan. 
And then God's transcendence meant that even though God entered through the person of Jesus into the created order at a specific time and place, that when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, his sacrifice could transcend time and space, so it could apply to all believers anywhere in the world, anywhere in history. After transcendence and eminence, we looked at God's exaltation and humility. God is high and lifted up and sovereign over all of creation. God's sovereignty meant that there wasn't and isn't any power anywhere who could derail his rescue plan. But God is also humble, lowly in heart, so that when it was necessary for Jesus to temporarily set aside that glory that he was due, he did it. Jesus took on a human nature so that he could become the perfect mediator between God and man. Right. And as we've seen today, God is a holy God. But God's perfect holiness does not mean that he will not forgive our sins when we confess them to him. God is so pure that his eyes cannot look upon evil. But when God looks at us, at you and me, God doesn't see our sins. He sees Jesus' righteousness. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think that's a great note to close on. As we've said before, God is not only a God of promise, but also a God of peril. He's a God of mercy and deliverance to those who trust in his Son, but he is a God of justice to those who don't. That's the rugged truth that we have to accept and proclaim. And that is, of course, why we wanted to launch this series on the complementary attributes of God. We have to be faithful to what the Bible tells us about God, and that's why we also labor so hard on Anchored by Truth to help people build a solid foundation about the fact that the Bible is demonstrably the Word of God. If the Bible weren't the Word of God, it might be an interesting sort of book on history and philosophy. But you could safely ignore the parts about commandments, judgment, eternity, and hell. But if the Bible is the Word of God, and we certainly believe that it is, then anyone who ignores those aspects of the Bible are in the same kind of danger Adam and Eve put themselves in when they ignored God's commandment about the tree in Eden. Yes. As we've worked our way through God's attributes, we have seen the same dynamic at work everywhere. It is absolutely true to say that God loves people, God is a God of love, but God's love is not divorced from His holiness or justice. So to properly understand God's attribute of being loving, we must keep God's entire character in mind. If God were not both transcendent and imminent, it would be hard to see how He could have arranged a transaction that allowed His love to be expressed as mercy to those who return His love. This points out that the deeper our understanding of God's character, the better we are able to worship Him, as the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. Well, in our next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to begin an entirely new series. So, we hope you'll join us then. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for wisdom and direction for our government officials those people who direct and support many activities that are essential for us to have stable and vibrant communities. Let's remember always to pray regularly for our nation and communities. The Bible assures us that, quote, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, unquote. 
and that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of His faithful children. Prayer for Government Leaders God of glory and ruler of all men, thank you for the manifold blessings that you have bestowed upon our community and nation. We remember today that all good gifts come down only from the Father of Light. Help us to never forget that you are sovereign and that we are completely dependent on your grace and mercy for that which sustains us and makes us fruitful. Lord, we pray that you would remember those who have been elected and appointed to serve as leaders of our communities, states, and nation. You have ordained that governments be established among men. It is your desire and command that governments provide for the defense of the weak and helpless and foster the common good. You desire all governments everywhere to pursue truth and justice in every action they take. For only honest and just servants are consistent with your holy character. Therefore, today we pray that you would inspire our leaders to be just and honorable. We pray that you would remind them that they are accountable to you for their conduct while in office, and that they are accountable for the results of their actions, not merely the content of their intentions. Thank you, blessed Lord, for your kindness and mercy. Glorify yourself in directing the ways of this nation and cause your name to be magnified on earth. In Christ's holy name we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.